Welcome to the 148th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 119 years to the day that Hugh Motley Thurlow, known as Pud, was born. On his only appearance for Australia in 1932, he ran himself out for a duck. Now, that may not sound very notable. Not may, it may not sound like something worthy of the history books. But stranded on 299 at the other end, one run short of the third test triple hundred that he would never get was Sir Don Bradman. Now, do you know why uh, Mr. Thurlow, his, his nickname was Pud? Or I, I, I wonder whether it's Pud. Maybe he had a particular predilection for puddings. Pud, Pud is better, isn't it? No, it's one of those nicknames where there's no clue in the name itself, is there? You can't really get Hugh or Motley or Thurlow into Pud, can you? Anyway, there, there was Pud. You know, sometimes they say that, you know, personal milestones don't matter. I reckon that Don Bradman would probably have thought that in that instance, he, he really should have had that extra run and his personal milestone should have happened. Now, um, we like to think of, of Andy as the kind of Andy Zaltzman or the Bill Frendel of the, um, of the podcast, as evidenced by that, particular, um, by that particular nugget. He's also been, um, Andy, you've also been looking into the, um, some stats about the podcast itself and have got a notable announcement about 2000 and, um, 2021. Yeah, so it was our most productive year for something like seven years with 16 episodes last year. So yeah, thank you for thank you for continuing to listen. And uh, we'll aim to be even more productive. You know, it is the season of uh, New Year's resolutions, etc. Um, so in this episode, we are going to be um, we're going to be looking back before we we look forward. Andy's going to be talking about some of his highlights of 2021 on the on the cricket pitch. Um, he's also going to be uh, delving into the wonderful world of, of Chris Martin. We haven't turned for 2022 into a into a Coldplay um, podcast. This is of course um, Chris Martin, the New Zealand uh, bowler, and we're going to be um, reviewing rather belatedly a podcast about England's preparation for the Ashes. We've obviously got a certain lens for that podcast now that um, Australia as we uh, speak have won the Ashes uh, 3-0 and uh, England have just saved the um, the Sydney test. Um, so uh, Andy looking back I imagine that one of your highlights of 2021 was not the, uh, the, the three Ashes tests that happened during that time. It wasn't no I, I think like most England fans we'll, we'll try to forget them at speed. Um, I was uh, it is that time of sort of looking back and looking forward I guess and I, I was reflecting on my own uh, cricketing achievements and I was thinking that sadly my my batting efforts for 2021 were were not substantial enough to to fill any kind of well any section in a podcast or any best <laughs> of list um, so for fondest memories I kind of fall back on bowling for the first time in years and, and taking an unexpected wicket and was that your it, off spin? It was with my with my legendary off spin and I, the I legendary off spin that goes straight on, you know, the constant arm balls. <laughs> or, or was or was was there a bit of a tweak in there? Well, my main recollection of the delivery was that I was more surprised than anyone else that I had actually bowled the batsman. I was the one. I was far more astonished than anyone else. So there, there was no real celebration. There was just a sort of look of shock, just amazement. Yeah, and I had to really be convinced by the wicketkeeper that it had actually removed the bales. I think as a spectator, it was wonderful to be back at Lords in 2021, even if it was somehow freezing in August. Uh, but my personal highlight was very much making it to Trent Bridge and the memory of sitting in the sun at the top of the Radcliffe mm. Road stand, stuffing my face with Scotch eggs, watching a very good game, trees in the distance, um, will be one to keep me going through the uh, endless winter months. 
Um, obviously, here in uh, here in Australia, the summer season still still continues, and I was reflecting the other day about the fact that I've only played once so far this summer and scored an unbeaten sixty eight, and I'm now kind of slightly reluctant to get back out onto the cricket pitch um, at any point because I know that anything I do is simply gonna is simply gonna dent dent that average. Protect the average, yeah, protect exactly. The average. Protect the average by my one innings of the um, one innings of the season. Um, now, I was in the I was in the UK over. Um, over Christmas, and so I wasn't able to play a whole lot of um, play a whole lot of cricket. But um, I did spend a bit of time uh, on Twitter. I have this love hate relationship with Twitter, where I know that it kind of rots my brain and wastes my time, and I often think <laughs> about about deleting my account. But just every now and again, it manages to pull me back in with some kind of uh, gold content. And over over Christmas, it was the account of um, Iceland cricket. Have you come across this? I this have account? I have done yeah it's, it, I, it, I think it's, it regularly makes an appearance on the on the stream yeah on the feed um so um firstly I was I was sure it must have been a uh, must have been a spoof but clearly whoever is behind it knows the game um, inside out there was quite a fun tweet yesterday that was a picture of this kind of moss covered rocky rocky landscape um, and some actually quite kind of on the money reflections on how um, wickets that were either covered in moss or made of, of pumice stone or made made of basalt would, would break up over the course of, of, of the game there was also another quite interesting um, tweet you know wondering whether cricket could introduce a handicap system whereby when you have two completely mismatched teams that actually a run counts more for a for a, a lesser team than it does for a greater team so you know if you for instance had a minnow playing against one of the major teams the minnow every time they score a run it might actually count for 2.3 runs or something like that as a way of kind of evening things up um a bit and there are all these kind of quite thought-provoking little um little moments but there's also a lot of a lot of fun there they had a, a a good time poking fun at England during the um, Ashes, obviously well deserved. Um, and and a little while ago, I enjoyed them asking. Um, they reflected on the fact that David Gower's uh, wife was born in Iceland, and and said, "Well, as a result of this, please could we have half of your Test runs to add towards our average?" And he um, he actually replied very happily, kind of consenting to this idea, but asking whether he could have some of our Iceland geothermal um, energy um, in response. And in a world when social media is is so often kind kind of um a total gimmick um i do think it's quite an enjoyable uh, kind of combination of of the uh, irreverent but also the the kind of well informed and it's also very clever because we've had you know reflections on this podcast about how you build as an associate nation yes and building your social media profile it, it may seem sort of frivolous or funny but it really matters i mean i yep. remember a while back uh iceland cricket team on twitter appealing for sponsorship and i think they had success partly because they had done the work in terms of building up a profile building up a, a number of followers that far exceeds their ability so um oh, that's sorry that sounded a bit patronizing i'm sure there is plenty of ability as well um but but, but but to that point actually if they were simply tweeting all the time about kind of league games in iceland no one would care Mm-hmm. Um, and so they do actually talk about cricket in Iceland, but they, as you say, manage to build up their following by these kind of reflections on the on the game at large, um, more uh, more broadly. So if you don't follow um, Iceland uh, cricket, I should know what the Twitter handle is. I'm sure people who who use Twitter will be able just to just to look it up. Um, but Iceland cricket on on Twitter, much um, much recommended. <laughs> Oh, 
from the archives. Now, um, in the recent Sydney Ashes test, uh, I heard that Jimmy Anderson was the uh, leading, um, had the leading number of not outs in test cricket with 101 not outs, which was a reflection, I thought, of the fact that nowadays bowlers really are expected to bat a bit. In this episode of Reverse Up Radio, um, Andy is going to be delving into the story of a bowler who uh, perhaps could be called the king of tailenders, someone who bucked the trend of bowlers being able to bat a bit, Chris Martin. So for a man who took over 200 test wickets, it seems odd and a little unfair that when you type Chris Martin cricketer into YouTube, you get Chris Martin batting (laughs) tribute, Chris Martin greatest shot ever in test cricket, and perhaps most honest and straight up, Chris Martin getting clean bowled, a compilation. But you can see why, because while his bowling returns for New Zealand were admirable, it's his batting efforts that were legendary. The stats back this up. He's part of an elite club of only two players who have played at least 50 tests and taken more wickets than they have scored runs. That is is remarkable. Just reflecting on that, it's worth just kind of highlighting that stat because that is it that is absolutely extraordinary basically you know an edge for four through the slips plus a, a streaky single and then getting clean bowled in order to counterweigh that in an innings you need to take a fifer it's a stat that's interesting because a because yes the the disproportionate value of a wicket versus a run but also because it does obviously involve a little bit of praise because it suggests you've taken a, a fair yep. few wickets yep. um it's a very elite club you know one of the most elite in test cricket it's just him and the indian spinner bs chandrasekhar no test player has been bowled for a duck more than his 20 times <laughs> so he's in a league of his own then and he finished with an average of 2.36 and a high score of 12 against Bangladesh. But I must add, in the interest of fairness, that that was a 12 not out. So do you have a sense of um, the kind of overall uh, New Zealand side at this point? Was, it, was he coming in on the back of, you know, massive batting collapses, um, you know, and facing kind of hostile, hostile bowling on the whole? Or was he kind of um, coming in with big totals already under the team's belt? What, what kind of state were the New Zealand side in? This is an unfair question to be throwing you off. I think it's fair to say that for most of his career, he played in a really sort of bang average New Zealand side. I think recent years have, uh, we've got used to New Zealand being, you know, the best test side in the world under Kane Williamson and with that bowling attack. Um, But I think his was the kind of New Zealand side that would have um, generally lost consistently to the best, beaten up the minnows and had decent games against everyone else. Because this was in the Um, late 1990s, early 2000s, really, that he was playing for, is that right? Exactly. Yeah, made his test debut in, in 2000, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, they had they had some success, but clearly a long way short of the team, the team they are today. Um, In particular, I think that team, you know, regularly, uh, regularly, uh, comprehensively beaten by their trans Tasman uh, neighbours. Go and treat yourself to these YouTube videos. There, There are plenty of them and you will not be able to resist trying to play coach and try to work out what it was that led to an average of 2.36. But I found it very hard to diagnose any specific issue. It's more just a a general malaise. Uh, You have him backing away from a pace bowler and getting clean bowled. And and that one will be very familiar to anyone who's played cricket at any level, really. The nervous player sort of stepping back against a pace bowler and, and leaving their stumps uncovered. 
Sometimes, and this is quite something to say for someone with his lack of success, it was too ambitious. So watching him try to flick a straight one from Dale Stain off his legs is, uh, yeah, is, is interesting and has predictable consequences. And that's interesting because the two don't seem to necessarily go together. That idea of trying to flick a straight one off your off your legs and being over ambitious versus the backing away and being and being nervous suggests that every time he was going to the crease, there was kind of a slightly different mentality going on in his head. There, there's very little in the way of kind of consistency in his approach no that i think that's right and i mean perhaps this was one of the problems in trying to correct the technique i think the most perplexing thing is how often he tries to defend the ball but misses and i think Mm. this is what's interesting is that you're you do get tail enders who will just come in and merrily swing and get out but he he often appeared to be trying to defend and simply missing the ball um and that is obviously a pretty a pretty fundamental issue. Well, one of the things I've always wondered about um, bowlers who, who bat is that clearly, if you're bowling at that um, at that level, presumably you have the ability to at least see the ball, which I think is a big mm. difference between you know if you or I were to go out and face ninety mile an hour bowling versus you know someone who bowls consistently at a high level. Surely you can actually have. Yeah, that level of, of seeing the ball and an element of that of that reaction time. But I suppose then again, maybe the two aren't um, aren't the same thing. Maybe there are some some you know. Do you as a bowler need to be able to have that kind of ability to see and ability to well, react? Maybe not. It's funny watching these videos, and I I found no evidence to back this up whatsoever. I did ponder whether there was genuinely maybe an eyesight thing. I mean, it sounds very patronising, but you know there have been stories of cricketers where someone has taken them for an eye test, and they've suddenly said, you know, this this explains all yeah. of it. Um, I mean, one thing Martin also says is that you know he had never made a fifty at any level of test cricket. Uh, sorry, any level of cricket whatsoever. And I think sometimes we say, "Oh, so and so is a complete rabbit." But you know, the reality is, if they batted at their local club or if they batted at their school, they would probably still be making great scores. Jason Gillespie scoring that double hundred against was it against Zimbabwe? Mm, In yeah, I think Perth, that was, was it? yeah. yeah. That ability, exactly, a good example of where the there is still a huge amount of ability there, if not in comparison to their peers. Um, he doesn't think he could have done anything about it, and I don't know whether this is sort of justifying it after the after his career. Um, he said he did try to improve, but without success. I think it comes back to your point at the start that I think now he would struggle to get picked with this average and yeah. also he would probably be part of a coaching setup that really forced him to just forced him to improve it's interesting that he says looking back on his career he thinks he would have better off just being purely more aggressive which is uh, possibly right um we have to say something in his defense which is that for all his batting failures he did take pride in having a pretty good record of helping teammates over the line to get their centuries um, which does bring out something of a team player and perhaps suggests that when things really, really counted, he was able to scrap along for a bit. I remember when I was at school, I was really, really bad at art. And I've got this school report where the art teacher says, the thing about Toby's art is that he has so little natural ability that it's kind of not even worth him trying. That You need to have <laughs> some ability in order to kind of build off it. And that was the you know end of my... I was going to be the next Picasso, but clearly that, <laughs> that school report put the end of it. I do. You do wonder to what extent someone who is just a complete bunny who just cannot bat, to what extent you actually try and... You know, 
how much is it is it worth banging your head against that brick wall as both the player and the coach to try and make yourself better and how far do you just throw up your hands and go well this is as good as it's ever going to be just in the same way that you don't if you have a batsman who can't bowl you don't as far as I'm aware go no no seriously we are going to keep trying this so that you can at some point have the ball thrown to you and you can play a you know bowl a few overs of 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 ropey leg spin as you say nowadays absolutely the mentality would be you have to keep trying and you're not going to get in the team unless you try but I do wonder kind of how productive that is for someone who just just can't bat and how far you just let them go well the reality is we're going to maybe get one run out of you if we're lucky you know and there is also a very natural thing where if you're a great seam bowler, why not just practice on being an even seam better bowling. seam no, exactly. bowler? Exactly, play to your strengths. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's always very tough on bo- uh, on bowlers, as, as we've noted, you know, this, this, this expectation, as we saw only a couple of days ago in Sydney, that you know, mm. they, have to, they, they have to do something with, with bat as well as ball. Um, Chris Martin is somewhat tired of the joke, somewhat tired of the YouTube videos. He told an interviewer last year that raising his batting in an interview is the easiest way to end a conversation with <laughs> me. Um, he also reflected that it is a funny thing to be exceptionally good at something and very poor at something and still be able to have a career. Mm. And this is a very distinct feature of cricket. Very few other sports allow you to be so poor at one facet of the game and still be a professional. We generally, you know, a natural comparison, I guess, could be something like football where you might be weaker in one dimension than another, but you're expected to still be pretty competent across across the piece. I remember very um, kind of early on in my cricketing consciousness watching a game in which, and I'm pretty certain it was Alan Mullally um, batting, the England bowler batting for England against the, I'm pretty certain it was the West Indies. Um, and the West Indies were bowling bouncers to him and the umpires just, went to the bowlers and just said look this is clearly unfair he just clearly cannot cope look can't you just bowl him a fast yorker and just be done with this there's just no point in kind of hurting him and that moment has stuck in the mind because it's kind of what you imagine that you would do if you ended up out in the middle facing some west indian bowlers you'd like the Mm -hmm. you know like the like the umpires to intervene and exactly as you say it's one of those few really relatable moments seeing someone kind of backing away to leg desperately trying to get out of the way that's the one thing i think we can all actually relate to when it comes to test cricket so thank you Chris Marden and Alan Mullally for giving that to us to the review and for this episode we've been listening to Project Ashes it's a BBC podcast uh, that came out in November and December of last year it's a six-parter in which Jonathan Agnew speaks to England players backroom staff about the preparation for the Ashes it's all about how England are brilliantly prepared and going to you know win (laughs) them back Um, now a big big part of this is giving a voice to those myriad members of staff who we kind of see hanging around the test team but as fans we generally have no idea what they do what did we learn about what they do um well well, we learned about how many of them there were i think that's that's fair to say and it's something that england have sort of been pilloried about in the past you know that document that came out a few years ago in the ashes around what they needed to eat and it was a 120 page document or something and you thought oh there's this massive bloated support staff behind the (laughs) scenes and in some way listening to this podcast sort of supports that view because you suddenly realize how many people there are but then you also realize i think how many people there how necessary it is to have those people um thinking about all of the aspects particularly of a tour there was a moment when um, Mo Bobat the um, ECB's performance director was talking about the fact that that morning he had been calling the um, 
whoever it was in Australia to arrange for the right kind of ball to be delivered and the right net boulders to be set up at different times. And you suddenly realise that, of course, all of these things kind of have to be arranged in advance. You can't leave any of this stuff to, you know, stuff to chance. So one thing I think that, that you suddenly get a sense of is just how big the machine is in order to get the England team um, on the pitch and therefore how many people, you know, you need and, and all of the kind of different machinations um machinations behind um behind that i think it's right absolutely right to say that this support staff have often been a bit of a target um and obviously particularly right now when things aren't going well um i was very entertained by the conversation with emma gardner england's nutritionist mm. she was very clear there would be no repeat of uh, the famous uh, the, the famous dossier. dodgy dossier yeah that was leaked <laughs> last time I was very taken with an obvious but interesting point she'd made, which I hadn't heard made before, that if you're a nutritionist in, say, you know, football or cycling, you basically know what your sportsman, your, your athlete needs to get through their event. Yeah. Um, you know what sort of exertion they're going to need to undertake. And um, she made the point that being a batsman is a complete nightmare because do you need to feed them to get ready to bat for six hours or do you need to feed them for a yep. ball? And uh, even more a very so entertaining a, challenge. Well, and, and even more so the bowlers as well. You know, you could either be out there bowling as a pace bowler, bowling 40 overs in, in massive heat, or you could be sitting in the dressing room doing absolutely nothing while the team is, um, yeah, while the team is batting. Exactly. I also, um, I thought, I mean, one of the kind of big characters, I suppose, in the podcast is, is Mo Bobat the performance director and he kind of characterizes his role as as kind of getting all of the players ready so that then Chris Silverwood has the largest pool of kind of fit players to 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 pick for um I did um think that he made some interesting kind of points and obviously thinks very deeply about about things down to the detail of, of of the language that you use around people getting dropped for instance is something that he he talks about and the fact that apparently in no other professional sport do you use the term dropped in in football they use terms like you know rotated or or, or rested um and that he said was talking about the fact that dropped is a very negative term that we kind of need to to get past and i was initially thinking oh that's a very kind of considerate way of of thinking about it and is it good isn't it good for the mental health of the players but then you also think well when in england's kind of in entire policy rests on this idea of rotation you kind of can't really use the term drops anymore because otherwise you know jimmy anderson for instance gets dropped on a regular basis that feels a bit yeah. kind of incongruous so is this really for the players or is it really for the kind of policy the overall selection then, policy of the team then, i have to say this this point knocked me a little bit because i couldn't help thinking you know these players are adults you know they realize that sometimes you are dropped that you perform yeah. poorly and you are dropped not good and enough, someone yeah. else is put in did this give you a sense of the, um, you know, listening to all of the preparation behind England's Ashes tour? We know how this has ended. Um, from this podcast, can you put your finger on what it was that England were doing wrong behind the scenes in the preparation for Project Ashes? Well, I think the answer is they probably were doing nothing wrong in a lot of the preparation. Mm. And I think you hear all these dil people diligently doing their jobs, as you say, making sure there are the correct balls on arrival in Sydney, etc. But ultimately, <laughs> it was a reminder that you can do all of this stuff and it comes back to the players. Um, Jonathan Agnew is very clear that he he's sort of the, the host and, and, and pushes this idea consistently that he is not convinced by the rotation policy. And that clearly has come under more and more criticism as this series has gone on. I mean, Stuart Broad has been a very clear critic of it. Um, we get the voice 
not just of the support staff, but also of a lot of the players. Um, I think Jonathan Agnew uh, tries very hard and uh, does well to sort of nudge the players. But I think we do unfortunately run into a lot of very cautious, very media trained interviews. I think for me, the highlight was the interview with Mark Wood and his wife, Sarah. Um, Mark Wood himself is a very, um, well, if he is media trained, he has done it in his own uh, distinct way. There's a northern honesty about him, is I think yeah. how it's best put. Exactly, and he, he you know, he he seems very willing to to, to be a, a very open. Um, and it's very rare, I think, that we do hear the voice of a, of a partner. And I think particularly interesting to hear about the sacrifices that Sarah has made to support Mark's career, and and for her not to not to uh, sugarcoat that and be honest about the difficulties. Nice it's to hear a- as well about the way the wives act as a support group for each other, which gives you a sense of a kind of team within a team. It's something that's been talked a lot about in the in the media going going back, you know, decades. This question of you know are wags a a distraction, and um, you know should they go on tour and should players go home for the birth of their children? And of course, most recently with this Ashes tour, um, the question in advance of whether because of Australia's quarantine laws and things like that around COVID, would the players' families be able to come out at all? And Joe Root coming out and saying, "I'm actually not going to tour unless my my family can come with." me and I did think it was the first time in this podcast that I'd actually heard exactly as you say players talk about the impacts of having their families or not having their families and and Mark Wood makes this point but also Stuart Board makes this point that they actually think that the team just simply plays better when their family is there because you suddenly have that kind of pressure release obviously test cricket is unique in terms of a sporting event going over multiple days and when you go home or back to your hotel in the evening actually being able to spend your time with your family and think about something that's not the cricket and actually get away from your teammates who you've been spending all day in the field or you know in the dressing room with is a really really important um a really really important part of uh you know how you succeed as a, as a touring team yeah, and I, I think there's it, it made you feel how outdated this rather Spartan idea that exactly there must be no one but the, your teammates, nothing but the yes, sport. Yes, and you have to room with your room with your teammates and all of that kind of thing, which makes for some great anecdotes in the kind of you know um, autobiographies of the 1970s to sort of 1990s. Um, but yeah, you do have to question kind of how healthy that is. Now, you did mention earlier this question of. Um, uh, rotation um, and obviously it's a it's a big question in terms of English cricket um, at the moment and I did think that there was some interesting kind of uh, sort of commentary that came through the through the podcast on this some of it perhaps in inadvertently there was an interview with Chris Silverwood in which he talks about the fact that any sporting team prioritizes and that he is the example of the British cycling team and says that well you have to prioritize the Olympics over the world championships to get the to get the best results and he said very explicitly that in 2021 the priorities for England were the World Cup and the Ashes. Um, And he goes on to talk about the, you know, to kind of illustrate this, what I think is a kind of Ashes fixation that the the England setup has. And the fact that, you know, they worked out that in order to have Dan Lawrence ready for um, the Ashes, ha-ha in hindsight, um, that in order to have him ready, that they worked out they had to debut in, in Sri Lanka in order to have the most amount of, you know, right amount of runs under his belt so that he wasn't, you know, debuting at the Gabba and all of that kind of stuff. So basically the entire year was set up on the basis of how do we get everyone ready for the, um, for the, for the Ashes. 
And you do have to wonder, and it's not, let's not talk too much about the rotation policy now, but what it really brought up for me was this question of if you're going to say the World Cup and the Ashes are your kind of headlines, the reality is that if you don't have a working team that's playing together going into that if you've got this kind of piecemeal approach then it's kind of no wonder if it just sort of collapses under the first bit of scrutiny and that if you don't look after some of those what Silverwood would see as the smaller series the Sri Lanka and bloody and if you just treat them as warm-ups rather than opportunities to build a cohesive team then is it any wonder that you get to the ashes and you don't have a cohesive team and you don't have a batting lineup that can you know that can kind of kind of stick together Phil Tufnell makes an interesting point on this as well when he says that unlike football the simple reality is that there are not enough top line players to actually support a rotation policy you don't have 12 top six batsmen in England at test level it just doesn't it just doesn't happen like that I think the problem is encapsulated in the title of the podcast itself I mean we probably shouldn't have a project ashes should we you know mm. it should be it should a be project, project English cricket England. team yeah Ex- exactly uh, and I think the obsession um, but we, we we could go round and round on this. I'm sure um, Chris Silverwood would energetically counter and say that it's not him who's made the Ashes the absurd over-priority that it is. It's us. It's the fans. It's our obsession with it. Well, and also um, the calendar is so packed that you have to prioritise between different things and that you can't put the same emphasis on on different series and expect the same team to be playing throughout the you know throughout all formats throughout a year given how the calendar is yep i think as you can tell from this debate uh listening to this podcast even after what has transpired will give you plenty more material to analyze why what has happened has happened and maybe to give you uh your your own um to, to inform your own thinking about what next for england i, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a uh, a joyful listen but it is it is certainly interesting um, and you will certainly hear voice. I'm sure an awful lot of those involved will not necessarily want to hear what they say here quoted back to them in the uh, aftermath of what's just taken place and of course in terms of uh, if anyone from the ECB is listening Andy and I are both available for a consultancy work around the next uh, around the next project ashes now being P- well particularly informed. in the Caribbean or subcontinent <laughs> Um, So that was the 148th episode of Reverse Swept Radio. Um, Welcome to 2022. We're looking looking forward to spending it with you and we'll be back in another couple of weeks to to report on a uh, remarkable England win in Hobart.